Welcome to the East Career Podcast, brought to you from the East Careers and Trauma Committee. I am David Skarupa from the University of Florida, Jacksonville. In this session, we are pleased to have Dr. William Schwab with us to discuss turning things over to your successor, how to do it well. Dr. Schwab is currently a professor of surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. He is past president of East, served as one of its visionary founding board members, and was the keynote speaker for the esteemed East Orient Award. Dr. Schwab has had an enormous impact on trauma care in the U.S. and abroad, and has received numerous civilian and military awards for his contributions. He is the founding chief of the Division of Traumatology, Surgical Critical Care, and Emergency General Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. He is one of the first traumatologists to study the effects of trauma in the elderly. In addition, Dr. Schwab is active in the field of violence prevention and continues to teach trauma surgeons how to become leaders in public health efforts to reduce firearm-related injuries. He directs the University of Pennsylvania Trauma Network. He also started and directed the fellowship program in trauma surgery and critical care at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania a program that has groomed many of the leaders in trauma today. Dr. Schwab, thank you for taking the time to sit down with us today and discuss how to effectively plan your succession. Thank you. Dr. You're welcome. Dr. Schwab, you have touched generations. My first job out of fellowship was working for Dr. Rotundo. He gave me the, quote, teaching chalk of C. William Schwab, that says, knowledge must always be shared. Can you expand on this? Well, it, it's nice to know, uh, David, that you've had such uh, great mentors and, and uh, wonderful teachers. I really believe that one of the things that is um, a cherished part of academic medicine, and especially surgery, is the ability to teach, to mentor, and to groom young people. And the reason that I always try to use the word knowledge as opposed to other words describe uh, what hopefully teachers will partake or give to their students is because knowledge is more than just knowing how to do things. It's knowing of why you do things and understanding that in the long run you have to be able to uh, understand and manage the repercussions of what you do. And so knowledge for me is something that requires fundamental understanding, smarts, a lot of experience, and then you put that together. And hearing that you were groomed by Mike Rotundo means that he um, was able to share with you some of the tremendous wisdom that he's got. So I think knowledge is an important thing, and knowledge is also important and needs to be uh, put into the lexicon for as you prepare for different stages of your career and I'm really thrilled that East picked this particular topic. It's not a topic that is very often covered in business or in higher education, much less surgery. So I'm looking forward to your questions. Well, thank you. And my time with Dr. Rotunda was fantastic. So you have had such success training these generations of surgical leaders. And as you do that, how do you define or teach success? Well, you know, it goes back to some fundamentals. Um, first of all, success has to be measured in terms of 
what it is you want to accomplish. And certainly in a surgical career, what you have to be is a competent physician, and then you have to be a highly skilled uh, technical and cognitive uh, surgeon. You could say that that's an important thing. Uh, and those two things along, skilled and knowledgeable and uh, very, very uh, competent uh, physician and surgeon is the measure of success. But in fact, in certain aspects of medicine, and especially in academic medicine, I believe once you become a, quote, professor of surgery or a teacher of trainees, uh, one of the things you have to do is you have to guarantee that they are successful. And what you do is you, you're given this privilege, this honor to have all these young, wonderful, enthusiastic, and talented people come into your life. And the job, I think, of the professor, the chief, or anybody who's a chair, a dean, a president of a university, is to spot real talent and say, that's the talent that I believe ought to be the leaders of the future. And your job shifts a little bit. It shifts from teaching them how to be that competent physician and that skillful surgeon to teaching them about the important things in life. And the important things in life are things like how to recognize talented and good people, how to be able to develop programs, how to be able to measure success and be able to show that to people so the programs you develop, in fact, are valued by people both in your discipline and outside your discipline, and ultimately how to grow that person to take and to learn how to take care of first issues, issues with a patient, issues with a service, issues with a unit like an ICU or an emergency department, issues with an operating room, to much bigger issues where they're dealing with very large issues, issues of how do I put together a whole department or a hospital, how do I run and fund these programs, and how do I then find the talent to continue to do this kind of work. So to me, success is measured at various things along our career. My career has been very lucky since I came to Penn. I've been at Penn for over 28 years, and I was really honored to come to this job, and I was very, very privileged to take it. The University of Pennsylvania, like all of our medical institutions, uh, is a conduit of tremendous talent, and it became very apparent to me that one of the things I was going to do here was I was going to develop leaders, and I hope and I think I've been successful in that. I think everyone would agree you have. To whom do you credit your success and this insight you have in developing so many leaders in trauma today? Well, let's take it outside of, of, of trauma. I think one of the things that happens to physicians, and especially young physicians, is, is the intensity of getting your medical degree and going on and training in surgery and then fellowship and all of the things and the tests and the retest that you have to take, you become very parochial. You look very much at your career in surgery. And I think what I constantly have to remind others, and especially I've reminded myself of, is that life and success is much bigger than medicine and surgery. So if you ask me how and who or what affected me, there's been a few things. Certainly my parents and especially my father who was an extremely successful businessman, by the way, with a high school, educated, uh, high school education, started as an office boy in an insurance company 
during the fall of the stock market in the 1920s and wound up retiring as an executive vice president and turned down being the president twice. A tremendous person with people, a tremendous fellow who could get the best out of people and really developed a tremendous company. I think the other thing is the opportunities that I've had along the way in medicine and being surrounded by some tremendous mentors. Certainly the chairman of surgery at the Naval Hospital Portsmouth, Virginia, Dr. Joe Mullen, who although he was a thoracic surgeon, was a tremendous trauma surgeon. And during Vietnam introduced so many of us, Joe Tipas being one of those, Mike Hawkins and a number of other people, to trauma surgery and to the principles of Vietnam. And last, the opportunities really to spread my wings out of surgery and to be asked to serve in some leadership roles actually in different genres, specifically higher education. I had the privilege of serving on the board of trustees of my undergraduate school, and eventually for six years I was the chairman of that board, which opened up all types of arenas, avenues, areas of people that I've never actually had a chance or would have had a chance to to, uh, be with uh, in that capacity. So there are just a few things that I think have been uh, wonderful that have afforded me some opportunities to develop my own leadership skills. So some would say that planning one's succession is the most important decision a leader will ever make, but it has often started too late. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the question's a good one, and once again, I'm going to correct one part of it. Let me tell you what I think the most important leadership is, because I think medicine and medical leaders do this poorly. I think they've gotten better in the last 10 years, but they do it poorly. And you don't find any lectures about this. Um, Usually, I've not heard any other than when I go to business uh, lectures or conferences. And that is the most important thing you do is you recruit. And whether that's recruiting residents or fellows or recruiting other faculty or recruiting other people into the organization that you run, recruitment, I think, in the medical world is a little bit skewed toward how successful have they been in writing papers, how successful have they been in writing grants. That's one aspect of selecting good leaders or potential leaders. But it's much more than that. And if you ask me what the most important thing I ever did to assure success here at Penn and my own success was to spend a lot of time, concentrated efforts, and a lot of difficult intellectual time picking great people and trying to pick them to come to Penn to join this organization. And I think that's the most important thing you do. To answer the question about succession, I think succession and succession planning is very, very important. And the reason I say that is is that if we take it out of the context of surgery, a surgery department, and we put it into more corporate terms, or we even use a higher education model like a, a college, one would go ahead and put value, meaning dollars and cents, on leadership. And the Fortune 500 Uh, And the businessmen that run that and lecture at places like Wharton or Harvard or business schools around the country will tell you that succession plan is extremely important from a dollars and cents point of view. A corporation can't stand, can't tolerate an 18-month, even a six-month time when their profits and their products are decreased. They can't tolerate that. 
And largely what I've done is said that succession planning is extremely important, and it has to be started years before the leader intends to step down. And that's what I did here at Penn. I actually started in 2010, stepped down in 2012 as the chief, and was very involved with picking my successor and planning the whole transition so he or she would be successful right from the time that they stepped into my office. And so I think succession planning is important, but I will send a message to anyone that chooses to listen to this that recruiting great people and surrounding you yourself with them is the most important lesson of any leader or for any leader. Okay, so you definitely established yourself as a leader at Penn and nationally as well as internationally. You recruited great faculty and you established yourself as the leader and the person in charge. But at the same time, you did such a good job of navigating the trend of navigating transitions and promoting your own faculty. Any pearls on how to do promote your own faculty into leadership roles and develop them to become potentially your successor while still maintaining yourself as the leader and in charge? Well, it's a great question, David. And, you know, there's there's whole afternoon seminars that are spent actually trying to tell people about Well, we this. have about 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and let me say a few things about that. First and foremost, I, I just want to say that that – It, I just can't underemphasize, not to repeat, the importance of selecting good people and surrounding yourself with them. But I want to make a comment, and that is some people select people uh, because they tend to agree with them. I've always tried to select people that are strong enough and willing enough to tell me not when I'm right, but tell me when I'm wrong. And not when I'm doing things correctly for everybody, but when I could have done them better. And I think that's an important thing. The other thing that I think is important is the attitude or the philosophy of your leadership. And there's all kinds, and we've seen all kinds in surgery. And I, I've been lucky enough, as I said, to have a significant amount of time in higher education. And I can tell you higher education has all types of personalities. There's the Attila the Huns to the Mother Teresas. There's the Jack Welches to the, you know, to the benevolent despot. And, and and I think the best way to describe me is that that I really believe in the servant leader, and that means not that you're a wuss. It doesn't mean that you're you know you're a pious person that never says anything. But a servant leader basically is very comfortable with not a a a strong ego that's extroverted and saps energy from people, but a very very firm ego that allows that ego in themselves to shine the spotlight and move the energy to the other person. I think one of the greatest things that I, I, I've ever experienced is watching some of our residents, some of our fellows, and some of our faculty obtain and achieve things that I've never been able to do. You mentioned one, but there are probably a dozen more who I've had the privilege of teaching and mentoring that now have gone well beyond anything that I could ever do. And I'm, it, it thrills me to do that. But the sign of a servant leader is someone who is strong enough with themselves that they shine the spotlight and they pass the energy and give the power to somebody else. And honestly, I'm as comfortable being the third base coach 
I'm probably better at that than I'll ever be at being the home run hitter. And and it's just I guess it's just part of me. So this is this is fantastic. So now you have picked your successor and you're grooming your successor. How do you what is the delicate balance of doing that without alienating anyone in the context of a great recruitment? Well, you know, it 2012 is when I stepped down and as I said I was lucky enough um to be involved with the national search or I should say the national kind of look at who should come here to Penn and honestly uh um it was really a privilege to have the dean and the chairman ask me to to essentially make a list and then independently they sorted through a number of national um uh, people that they thought would fit uh, well for the division here at Penn and you know, Pat Riley was the obvious guy for me from the get-go. I mean, he's got all the right stuff, and he's a tremendous person and a great heart and a moral, ethical code that is that, that is unre- it's just unbelievable. Great guy. Um, grooming Pat Riley is another whole topic, but on the other hand, what's really cool about this is is that I'm going to go back to the the comfort that I have with being a coach. I think I've had my period of being a superstar and being a home run hitter um, as short as it was or as long as it was. You can be the judge of that. But in all honesty, I just like the position in coaching, the coaching position. I like being the first assistant at the operating room much more than I like being the surgeon, and it's because it's so much fun when time and physiology allows it, it's so much fun to be able to take the young trainee or the fellow or the young faculty through something that that I've done. So coaching for me is really a very comfortable thing. I think one of the things you learn when you're going through succession and you're on site, meaning that you're, you're staying on the faculty, is you have to know what signals between you and your successor are important. Very similar to some of the baseball analogy that I've I, I've discussed. You, you know, sometimes you just have to stay in the third base coaching box and you just have to let the hitter do what they want to do. But every once in a while when you read signs or you read certain people on the playing field, you send in some signals to the to the player, to the hitter, and you just kind of say, this is what I'm telling you to do, or I'm suggesting do this. And, and I'm pretty comfortable with that. You You can't... You can't assure your successor support for what they do if you insert yourself, intimidate, or overpower your successor. And again, when you're lucky enough to me to like me to have uh, the ability to pick somebody that you know and you know well, uh, I, I never saw myself doing that with Pat, or would I see myself doing that with somebody unless they really needed to be pulled out of harm's way. And so Pat and I had the privilege and, and really the long-term relationship of knowing each other's signals very well. And so I always tell Pat that I'm down there at that third baseline, and if you need me, you know, just go ahead and give me the nod, and I'll be able to do things for you or help you with things. But it's a it's a difficult role, and I'm going to end with this. And I don't think medicine does it very well. I don't think we plan on that. We're so ego-strong, and we're so involved with patient care and we're so busy. I don't think a lot of surgical leaders really plan their succession well. And that's just a kind of a maybe it's a 
nearsighted comment on my part. I don't mean to offend anybody, but I don't think we do it. I think you have to go back to what I said before. You're running a program with lots of people whose lives depend on you. And I think people have to be, especially leaders, have to be as committed to providing safe and very, very thoughtful succession as they are at patient care educational programs or some of the education or mentoring opportunities that go on uh, with the teaching of surgery. Okay, so what is your advice to the listeners when a member of a strong division or your faculty has demonstrated leadership potential, expressed aspirations and desires to be your successor, but he or she is not the best candidate? How do you handle it, and how do you maintain the divisional espiritic core? Well, it's a great question, and uh, David, if you prepared the questions, uh, they're they're excellent. Well, let me answer it this way. I I would say to that particular person, you, you have tremendous abilities. You have tremendous abilities, and you've shown great leadership. But remember that fulfilling a complex and a very very big job requires a lot of different things. It requires experience, technical capability. It requires fundamental knowledge. It requires people skills. It requires ability to take care of crises and respond appropriately. And what I'm creating for you is I'm creating a mosaic, if you would, of characteristics that define great leaders. And I would say to that person, you have some of that. And in places, places would really welcome you as their leader. But what I have to assure is that here it's the best match, and nobody knows this job better than I do. And although you'll always be welcome here and there are other wonderful things you can do for us, if you're destined and you are being called to go lead a place, I'll support you. But I just don't think you're the best match and match and fit is as important as any of the talents that I mentioned in this discussion. And that's how I would handle it, and I would maintain a supportive relationship and a good relationship, and I would help them on their journey, whether it's to stay within our own division and take on some new things, or to transition to their own shop and develop their own programs. So you've your successor has been nominated, and I think you touched on this a little bit, that you're the third base coach and you're there to help just give me the nod. But especially if it's an internal candidate, how do you help them establish themselves as now the leader and the one in charge? How do they get out of your shadow? Because people in the background might say things like, well, that's not the way Dr. Schwab did it, or that's not the way we used to do it. How do you handle that and help your successor be successful? Well, it's important that, first of all, in the succession itself, and especially just prior to that, people understand that you are going to support that person. And remember, I always say actions are louder and speak louder than words. 
And so there's going to be many people that will come to you and will try to figure that out before you actually turn over, if you would, the office. And there will be a lot of people afterwards, both directly and indirectly, that will come to you and see if you're supporting what the person's doing. And the answer is you have to be really careful about that. You have to, when you say you're turning over, if you would, the keys to the kingdom, and you're going to let that person run it for you, and you go into that coaching position, you need to let them do that. doesn't mean you don't watch them, guard them, and advise them, but largely that all goes behind closed doors, and they become the public front, the communicator, and if you would, their actions are supported by you. And that doesn't mean you can't disagree. You can absolutely disagree, and you should disagree. But it always ought to be in private, and it ought to be very, very limited to your successor and you. And that's important. That's a little bit different than the type, I think, of leadership that is permeating medicine where you call together a committee, you go to a conference room, and everybody gibberishes about a whole bunch of things. And essentially they're allowed to vent and they're allowed to give their feelings. What I'm talking about is between your immediate successor and you're still in the shop and you're being used as a coach, those coaching sessions are very private. And remember what I said to you, signals. There are signals between you and your successor that are very important. There is also the ability to audible, and the audible from the coach down that third baseline is, I need to talk to you. And that takes on the highest priority. And I must admit, I'm really privileged with Dr. Riley because when both of us call an audible, it's drop everything and, and talk to each other. And I can tell you it's very uncommon that we do that, but we've always had that relationship. And it's even stronger now that I'm this coach. At least I keep telling myself I'm his coach, although I'm coaching him less and less, which is a sign, I think, of success. So I hope I answered your question. But I, I really, truly believe that what you have to do is you have to carry out your mentoring and coaching sessions and your disagreements very much in private because outside of that private room, the successor is the public face and is the communicator and is the person in charge. And that's extremely important in a surgical arena. All right. And just a couple more questions. What mistakes have you made? Or what would you – is there anything that you would do differently? Well, you have to be careful, David. I was brought up a Catholic, so what I'm supposed to say after what mistakes have you made, I think, is bless me, Father, for I've sinned. Sin, but anyway – Go to confession, yeah. Yeah, I know. So, you know, um, let me just say, the, the, some of them – in a professional arena, the most important mistakes that I think I've made early on is I recruited uh, the wrong person. And it was a bad fit, and I've done that a few times, and you learn from that. Uh, I think it's very important, and I, I teach this to every one of the people that's with me. You know, it, it, takes you, it takes you three to six months to find somebody. And if it's the wrong person, it'll take you three to six years to get rid of them. And let me tell you, you will suffer from the three to six years in which that person, not a bad person, but just doesn't fit. They don't fit. So I made some recruiting mistakes early on. I think the other thing that I learned, if you can imagine, I really, as a young man, had a really, 
hot temper and classic surgeon. I would fly off and the handle and I would say things and they were probably very inappropriate and hurtful. It doesn't mean that I don't have a temper. It doesn't mean that I can't be direct and I can't be authoritative now. But I really learned to kind of internalize the temper and think through and figure out a way and a time to say it in a much stronger, a much more acceptable way and a way in which I can move the issue and get people to do what I think they needed to do. That's different than discipline. Discipline is a little bit different. Discipline sometimes has to be done immediately and with very, very strong hands. But the mistake I made as a young man is I think I let my temper get the best of me. Um, and I think the other mistake that I, I've made at times, and all surgeons suffer from this because we're all overachievers, is I've made the mistake of taking on too many commitments and not doing a very good job with any of them. And I would tell, and I do tell, all of the young faculty here, stop. Don't take that on. I had a policy for the first 20 years here at Penn that for the first two to three years of your faculty time, you did not take on any administrative jobs. You basically practiced very high-level trauma-critical care emergency surgery. You developed your academic and scholastic life, and you did not sit on committees. And the reason is committees are the death knell of an academic life. And reason is is because we had enough of mid-level faculty and senior people like myself that could sit on those committees and yet let the young new assistant professor really, really work on those two things finishing school in clinical surgery, and developing their scholastic life. And the mistake I made, I think, at times is to ignore that, let somebody, again, usually that wonderful personality, that person that wants to take on so much and change the world. But I, I think the mistake I made sometimes is not to be as strict with that and see them falter them when it came up for academic promotion and falter when they really had to establish themselves uh, scholastically. If you're going to stay in academic medicine, the gold bullion is in the written word. If you don't get that started early on in your year, first few years, excuse me, your first few years of your faculty life, you're, you're never going to get it. You're just never going to get it. And the reason is not that you're a bad person, because clinical surgery is so much fun. If you said to me even now in my career, what would I rather do, be in here writing a paper or working on one, which I did all morning, or upstairs or down in the trauma bay or in the operating room, best of all? I would much rather be doing clinical surgery. But you have to realize early on, and you've got to actually make the young faculty recognize their scholastic achievements and the contribution of the written world is their gold bullion, and it will pay them the rest of their lives. My mistake was not to enforce that in a few of the faculty. I think that's three big ones I've made professionally. Personally, I won't tell you any of my, any of my mistakes. All right. So just and one more question, and you'll have the final, final word here. Uh, just to sum up, what is one thing you would like to convey to the audience, one pearl on planning for your succession? Well, I think the most important pearl we haven't talked about this is, is how do you pick good people and how do you pick your successor? They're interlinked. I think I've always been uh, impressed and it's been necessary for me to find people that have 
unbelievable integrity and an outstanding, unblemished moral ethical code. To me, the character of the person is as important as the achievements. And I think what is the most important about anyone who is looking at succession planning is to spend some time and to think about if you were to write out in three or four paragraphs, what would be your ideal successor? What would they look like as far as their character? And what would you hope they would achieve? It's amazing how that exercise will help people understand that it all comes back to the most important thing that should be in those paragraphs, the character of the person who's going to succeed you. And I think that's really important. Okay. Well, on behalf of the East Careers and Trauma Committee, I would like to thank you, Dr. Schwab, for taking time to speak with us today. I am David Skarupa, and I hope you enjoyed the program. When you find a moment of time, please visit the EAST website at www.east.org for more EAST career podcasts and other available information.